My Family and Other Animals, Chapter One, The Unsuspected Isle. We threaded our way out of the noise and confusion of the customs shed into the brilliant sunshine on the quay. Around us the town rose steeply, tiers of multicoloured houses piled haphazardly, green shutters folded back from their windows like the wings of a thousand moths. Behind us lay the bay, smooth as a plate, smouldering with that unbelievable blue. Larry walked swiftly, with head thrown back, an expression of such regal disdain on his face that one did not notice his diminutive size, keeping a wary eye on the porters who struggled with his trunks. Behind him strolled Leslie, short, stocky, with an air of quiet belligerence, and then Margot, trailing yards of muslin and scent. Mother, looking like a tiny harassed missionary in an uprising, was dragged unwillingly to the nearest lamppost by an exuberant Roger and was forced to stand there, staring into space, while he relieved pent-up feelings that had accumulated in his kennel. Larry chose two magnificently dilapidated horse-drawn cabs, had the luggage installed in one, and seated himself in the second. And then he looked round irritably. Well, he asked, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Mother, explained Leslie. Roger's found the lamppost. Dear God, said Larry, and then hoisted himself upright in the cab and bellowed, Come on, Mother! Come on! Can't the dog wait? Coming, dear, called Mother passively and untruthfully, for Roger showed no signs of quitting the post. That dog's been a damn nuisance all the way, said Larry. Don't be so impatient, said Margot indignantly. The dog can't help it, and anyway, we had to wait an hour in Naples for you. My stomach was out of order, explained Larry coldly. Well, presumably his stomach's out of order, said Margot triumphantly. It's six of one and a dozen of the other. You mean half a dozen of the other? Whatever I mean, it's the same thing. At this moment, Mother arrived, slightly dishevelled, and we had to turn our attentions to the task of getting Roger into the cab. He had never been in such a vehicle, and treated it with suspicion. Eventually, we had to lift him bodily and hurl him inside, yelping frantically, and then pile in breathlessly after him and hold him down. The horse, frightened by this activity, broke into a shambling trot, and we ended in a tangled heap on the floor of the cab, with Roger moaning loudly underneath us. What an entry, said Larry bitterly. I had hoped to give an impression of gracious majesty, and this is what happens. We arrive in town like a troop of medieval tumblers. Don't keep on, dear, Mother said soothingly, straightening her hat. We'll soon be at the hotel. So our cab clopped and jingled its way into the town, while we sat on the horsehair seats and tried to muster the appearance of gracious majesty Larry required. Roger, wrapped in Leslie's powerful grasp, lolled his head over the side of the vehicle and rolled his eyes as though at his last gasp. Then we rattled past an alleyway in which four scruffy mongrels were lying in the sun. Roger stiffened, glared at them and let forth a torrent of deep barks. The mongrels were immediately galvanised into activity and they sped after the cab, yapping vociferously. Our pose was irre irretrievably shattered for it took two people to restrain the raving Roger, while the rest of us leaned out of the cab and made wild gestures with magazines and books at the pursuing horde. This only had the effect of exciting them still further, and at each alleyway we passed their numbers increased, until by the time we were rolling down the main thoroughfare of the town there were some twenty-four dogs swirling about our wheels, almost hysterical with anger. 
Why doesn't somebody do something? Asked Larry, raising his voice above the uproar. This is like a scene from Uncle Tom's cabin. Why don't you do something instead of criticising? Snapped Leslie, who was locked in combat with Roger. Larry promptly rose to his feet, snatched the whip from our astonished driver's hand, made a wild swipe at the herd of dogs, missed them and caught Leslie across the back of the neck. What the hell do you think you're playing at? Leslie snarled, twisting a scarlet and angry face towards Larry. Accident, explained Larry airily. I'm out of practice. It's so long since I used a horse whip. Watch what you're bloody well doing, said Leslie loudly and belligerently. Now, now, dear, it was an accident said Mother. Larry took another swipe at the dogs and knocked off Mother's hat. You're more trouble than the dogs, said Margot. Do be careful, dear, said Mother, clutching her hat. You might hurt someone. I should put the whip down. At that moment, the cab shambled to a halt outside a doorway, over which hung a board with a pension suisse inscribed on it. The dogs, feeling that they were at last going to get to grips with this effeminate black canine who rode in cabs, surrounded us in a solid, panting wedge. The door of the hotel opened, and an ancient, bewhiskered porter appears and stood staring glassily at the turmoil in the street. The difficulties of getting Roger out of the cab and into the hotel were considerable, for he was a heavy dog, and it took the combined efforts of the family to lift, carry and restrain him. Larry had by now forgotten his majestic pose and was rather enjoying himself. He leapt down and danced about the pavement with a whip, cleaving a path through the dogs, along which Leslie, Margot, Mother and I hurried, bearing the struggling, snarling Roger. We staggered into the hall and the porter slammed the front door and leant against it, his moustache quivering. The manager came forward, eyeing us with a mixture of apprehension and curiosity. Mother faced him, hat on one side of her head, clutching in one hand my jam jar of caterpillars. Ah, she said, smiling sweetly, as though our arrival had been the most normal thing in the world. Our name's Durrell. I believe you've got some rooms booked for us. Yes, madam, said the manager, edging around the still grumbling Roger. They are on the first floor, four rooms and a balcony. How nice, beamed Mother. Then I think we'll go straight up and have a little rest before lunch and with considerable majestic graciousness, she led her family upstairs. Later, we descended to lunch in a large and gloomy room full of dusty potted plants and contorted statuary. We were served by the bewhiskered porter, who had become the head waiter simply by donning tails and a celluloid dickey that creaked like a convention of crickets. The meal, however, was ample and well-cooked, and we ate hungrily. As coffee was served, Larry sat back in his chair with a sigh. That was a passable meal, he said generously. What do you think of this place, Mother? Well, the food's all right, dear, said Mother, refusing to commit herself. They seem a helpful crowd, Larry went on. The manager himself shifted my bed nearer the window. Wasn't very helpful when I asked for paper, said Leslie. Paper? asked Mother. What did you want paper for? For the lavatory. There wasn't any in there, explained Leslie. Shh, not at the table, whispered Mother. You obviously don't look, said Margot in a clear and penetrating voice. They've got a little box full by the pan. Margot, dear, exclaimed Mother, horrified. What's the matter? Didn't you see the little box? Larry gave a snort of lager. Of lager? Laughter. My Family and Other Animals, Chapter One, The Unsuspected Isle. 
We threaded our way out of the noise and confusion of the customs shed into the brilliant sunshine on the quay. Around us the town rose steeply, tiers of multicoloured houses piled haphazardly, green shutters folded back from their windows like the wings of a thousand moths. Behind us lay the bay, smooth as a plate, smouldering with that unbelievable blue. Larry walked swiftly, with head thrown back, an expression of such regal disdain on his face that one did not notice his diminutive size, keeping a wary eye on the porters who struggled with his trunks. Behind him strolled Leslie, short, stocky, with an air of quiet belligerence, and then Margot, trailing yards of muslin and scent. Mother, looking like a tiny harassed missionary in an uprising, was dragged unwillingly to the nearest lamppost by an exuberant Roger and was forced to stand there, staring into space, while he relieved pent-up feelings that had accumulated in his kennel. Larry chose two magnificently dilapidated horse-drawn cabs, had the luggage installed in one, and seated himself in the second. And then he looked round irritably. Well, he asked, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for Mother, explained Leslie. Roger's found the lamppost. Dear God, said Larry, and then hoisted himself upright in the cab and bellowed, Come on, Mother! Come on! Can't the dog wait? Coming, dear, called Mother passively and untruthfully, for Roger showed no signs of quitting the post. That dog's been a damn nuisance all the way, said Larry. Don't be so impatient, said Margot indignantly. The dog can't help it, and anyway, we had to wait an hour in Naples for you. My stomach was out of order, explained Larry coldly. Well, presumably his stomach's out of order, said Margot triumphantly. It's six of one and a dozen of the other. You mean half a dozen of the other? Whatever I mean, it's the same thing. At this moment, Mother arrived, slightly dishevelled, and we had to turn our attentions to the task of getting Roger into the cab. He had never been in such a vehicle, and treated it with suspicion. Eventually, we had to lift him bodily and hurl him inside, yelping frantically, and then pile in breathlessly after him and hold him down. The horse, frightened by this activity, broke into a shambling trot, and we ended in a tangled heap on the floor of the cab, with Roger moaning loudly underneath us. What an entry! said Larry bitterly. I had hoped to give an impression of gracious majesty, and this is what happens. We arrive in town like a troop of medieval tumblers. Don't keep on, dear, Mother said soothingly, straightening her hat. We'll soon be at the hotel. So our cab clopped and jingled its way into the town, while we sat on the horsehair seats and tried to muster the appearance of gracious majesty Larry required. Roger, wrapped in Leslie's powerful grasp, lolled his head over the side of the vehicle and rolled his eyes as though at his last gasp. Then we rattled past an alleyway in which four scruffy mongrels were lying in the sun. Roger stiffened, glared at them and let forth a torrent of deep barks. The mongrels were immediately galvanised into activity and they sped after the cab, yapping vociferously. Our pose was irre irretrievably shattered for it took two people to restrain the raving Roger, while the rest of us leaned out of the cab and made wild gestures with magazines and books at the pursuing horde. This only had the effect of exciting them still further, and at each alleyway we passed their numbers increased, until by the time we were rolling down the main thoroughfare of the town there were some twenty-four dogs swirling about our wheels, almost hysterical with anger. "'Why doesn't somebody do something?' asked Larry, raising his voice above the uproar. "'This is like a scene from Uncle Tom's cabin!' 
Why don't you do something instead of criticising? Snapped Leslie, who was locked in combat with Roger. Larry promptly rose to his feet, snatched the whip from our astonished driver's hand, made a wild swipe at the herd of dogs, missed them and caught Leslie across the back of the neck. What the hell do you think you're playing at? Leslie snarled, twisting a scarlet and angry face towards Larry. Accident, explained Larry airily. I'm out of practice. It's so long since I used a horse whip. Watch what you're bloody well doing, said Leslie loudly and belligerently. Now, now, dear, it was an accident, said Mother. Larry took another swipe at the dogs and knocked off Mother's hat. You're more trouble than the dogs, said Margot. Do be careful, dear, said Mother, clutching her hat. You might hurt someone. I should put the whip down. At that moment, the cab shambled to a halt outside a doorway, over which hung a board with a pension suisse inscribed on it. The dogs, feeling that they were at last going to get to grips with this effeminate black canine who rode in cabs, surrounded us in a solid, panting wedge. The door of the hotel opened, and an ancient, bewhiskered porter appears and stood staring glassily at the turmoil in the street. The difficulties of getting Roger out of the cab and into the hotel were considerable, for he was a heavy dog, and it took the combined efforts of the family to lift, carry and restrain him. Larry had by now forgotten his majestic pose and was rather enjoying himself. He leapt down and danced about the pavement with a whip, cleaving a path through the dogs, along which Leslie, Margot, Mother and I hurried, bearing the struggling, snarling Roger. We staggered into the hall and the porter slammed the front door and leant against it, his moustache quivering. The manager came forward, eyeing us with a mixture of apprehension and curiosity. Mother faced him, hat on one side of her head, clutching in one hand my jam jar of caterpillars. Ah, she said, smiling sweetly, as though our arrival had been the most normal thing in the world. Our name's Durrell. I believe you've got some rooms booked for us. Yes, madam, said the manager, edging around the still grumbling Roger. They are on the first floor, four rooms and a balcony. How nice, beamed Mother. Then I think we'll go straight up and have a little rest before lunch and with considerable majestic graciousness, she led her family upstairs. Later, we descended to lunch in a large and gloomy room full of dusty potted plants and contorted statuary. We were served by the bewhiskered porter, who had become the head waiter simply by donning tails and a celluloid dicky that creaked like a convention of crickets. The meal, however, was ample and well-cooked, and we ate hungrily. As coffee was served, Larry sat back in his chair with a sigh. Well, that was a passable meal, he said generously. What do you think of this place, Mother? Well, the food's all right, dear, said Mother, refusing to commit herself. They seem a helpful crowd, Larry went on. The manager himself shifted my bed nearer the window. It wasn't very helpful when I asked for paper, said Leslie. Paper? asked Mother. What did you want paper for? For the lavatory, there wasn't any in there, explained Leslie. Shh, not at the table, whispered Mother. You obviously don't look, said Margot in a clear and penetrating voice. They've got a little box full by the pan. Margot, dear, exclaimed Mother, horrified. What's the matter? Didn't you see the little box? Larry gave a snort of laughter. Owing to the somewhat eccentric plumbing system of the town, he exclaimed to Margot kindly, that little box is provided for the uh, debris, as it were, when you have finished communing with nature. Margot's face turned scarlet, with a mixture of embarrassment and disgust. 
You mean, you mean that was, my God, I might have caught some foul disease, she wailed, and bursting into tears, fled from the dining room. Most insanitary, said Mother severely. It really is a disgusting way to do things. Quite apart from the mistakes one can make, I should think there's a danger of getting typhoid. Mistakes wouldn't happen if they'd organised things properly, Leslie pointed out, returning to his original complaint. Yes, dear, but I, I don't think we ought to discuss it now. The best thing we can do is find a house as soon as possible before we all go down with something. Upstairs, Margot is in a state of semi-nudity, splashing disinfectant over herself in quantities, and Mother spent an exhausting afternoon being forced to examine her at intervals for the symptoms of the diseases which Margot felt sure she was hatching. It was unfortunate for Mother's peace of mind that the pension Suisse happened to be situated in the road leading to the local cemetery. As we sat on our small balcony overhanging the street, an apparently endless succession of funerals passed beneath us. The inhabitants of Corfu obviously believed that the best part of a, of a bereavement was the funeral, for each seemed more ornate than the last. Cabs decorated with yards of purple and black crepe were drawn by horses so enveloped in plumes and canopies that it was a wonder they could move. Six or seven of these cabs, containing the mourners in full and uninhibited grief, preceded the corpse itself. This came on another cart-like vehicle and was ensconced in a coffin so large and lush that it looked like an enormous birthday cake. Some were white with purple, black and scarlet and deep blue decorations. Others were gleaming black with complicated filigrees of gold and silver twining abundantly over them, glittering brass handles. I'd never seen anything so colourful and attractive. This, I decided, was really the way to die, with shrouded horses, acres of flowers and a horde of most satisfactorily grief-stricken relatives. I hung over the balcony rail, watching the coffins pass beneath, absorbed and fascinated. As each funeral passed, and the sounds of mourning and the clopping of hooves died away in the distance, Mother became more and more agitated. I'm sure it's an epidemic, she exclaimed at last, peering nervously down into the street. Nonsense, mother, don't fuss, said Larry airily. But dear, so many of them, it's unnatural. There's nothing unnatural about dying. People do it all the time. Yes, but they don't die like flies unless there's something wrong. Perhaps they save them up and bury them in a bunch, suggested Leslie callously. Don't be silly, said mother. I'm sure it's something to do with the drains. It can't be healthy for people to have those sorts of arrangements. My God said Margot sepulchrally. Then I suppose I'll get it. No, 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 dear, it doesn't follow, said Mother vaguely. It might be something that's not catching. Well, I don't see how you can have an epidemic unless it's something catching, Leslie remarked logically. Anyway, said Mother, refusing to be drawn into any medical arguments, I think we ought to find out. Can't you ring up the health authorities, Larry? There probably aren't any health authorities here, Larry pointed out. And even if they were, I doubt if they'd tell me. Well, Mother said with determination, there's nothing for it. We'll have to move. We must get out of the town. We must find a house in the country at once. The next morning we started on our house hunt, accompanied by Mr Beeler, the hotel guide. He was a fat little man with cringing eyes and sweat-polished jowls. He was quite sprightly when we set off, but then he did not know what was in store for him. No one who has not been house hunting with my mother can possibly imagine it. 
We drove around the island in a cloud of dust while Mr. Beeler showed us villa after villa in a bewildering selection of sizes, colours and situations and Mother shook her head firmly at them all. At last we had contemplated the tenth and final villa on Mr. Bella's list and Mother had shaken her head once again. Brokenly, Mr. Beeler seated himself on the stairs and mopped his face with his handkerchief. Madam Durrell, he said at last, I've shown you every villa I know, yet you do not want any, madam. What is it you require? What is the matter with these villas? Mother regarded him with astonishment. Didn't you notice? she asked. None of them had a bathroom. Mrs. Mr. Beeler stared at Mother with bulging eyes. But, madam, he wailed in genuine anguish, what for you want a bathroom? Have you not got the sea? We returned in silence to the hotel. By the following morning, Mother had decided that we would hire a car and go out house hunting on our own. She was convinced that somewhere on the island there lurked a villa with a bathroom. We did not share Mother's belief, and so it was a slightly irritable and argumentative group that she herded down to the taxi rank in the main square. The taxi drivers, perceiving our innocent appearance, scrambled from inside their cars and flocked round us like vultures, each trying to outshout his compatriots. Their voices grew louder and louder, their eyes flashed, they clutched each other's arms and ground their teeth at one another, and then they laid hold of us as though they would tear us apart. Actually, we were being treated to the mildest of mild altercations, but we were not used to the Greek temperament, and to us it looked as though we were in danger of our lives. Can't you do something, Larry? Mother squeaked, disentangling herself with difficulty from the grasp of a large driver. Tell them you'll report them to the British Consul, suggested Larry, raising his voice above the noise. Don't be silly, dear, said Mother breathlessly. Just explain that we don't understand. Margot, simpering, stepped into the breach. We English, she yelled at the gesticulating drivers. We no understand Greek. If that man pushes me again, I'll poke him in the eye, said Leslie, his face flushed red. Now, now, dear, panted Mother, still struggling with the driver who was propelling her vigorously towards his car. I don't think they mean any harm. At that moment, everyone was startled into silence by a voice that rumbled out above the uproar, a deep, rich, vibrant voice, the sort of voice you'd expect a volcano to have. Oi! roared the voice. Why don't you have someone who can talk your own language? Turning, we saw an ancient dodge parked by the curb, and behind the wheel sat a short, barrel-bodied individual with ham-like hands and a great leathery, scowling face surmounted by a jauntily tilted peaked cap. He opened the door of the car, surged out onto the pavement, and waddled across to us. Then he stopped, scowling even more ferociously, and surveyed the group of silent cab drivers. "'Them's been worrying Zeus?' he asked Mother. No, no, said Mother, untruthfully. It was just that we had difficulty in understanding them. You want someone who can talk your own language, repeated the new arrival. Them's bastards, if you will excuse the words, would swindle their own mothers. Excuse me a minute and I'll fix them. He turned on the drivers, a blast of Greek that almost swept them off their feet. Aggrieved, gesticulating, angry, they were herded back to their cars by this extraordinary man.
Having given them a final and, it appeared, derogatory blast of Greek, he turned to us again. Where's he wants to go? He asked almost truculently. Can you take us to look for a villa? Asked Larry. Sure, I'll take you anywheres. Just you says. We are looking, said Mother firmly, for a villa with a bathroom. Do you know of one? The man brooded like a great sun-tanned gargoyle. His black eyebrows twisted into a knot of thoughtfulness. Bathrooms, he said. You want a bathrooms? None of the ones we have seen so far had them, said Mother. Oh, I know a villa with bathrooms, said the man. I was wondering if it was going to be bigs enough for you. Will you take us to look at it, please? asked Mother. Sure, I'll take you. Get into the cars. We climbed into the spacious car, and our driver hoisted his bulk behind the steering wheel and engaged his gears with a terrifying sound. We shot through the twisted streets on the outskirts of the town, swerving in and out among the loaded donkeys, the carts, the groups of peasant women and innumerable dogs, our horn honking a deafening warning. During this, our driver seized the opportunity to engage us in conversation. Each time he addressed us, he would crane his massive head round to see our reactions, and the car would swoop back and forth across the road like a drunken swallow. Use English? Thought so. English always wants bathrooms. I get a bathroom in my house. Spiro's my name. Spiro Hakiopoulos. They all calls me Spiro Americano on account of I lives in America. Yes, spent eight years in Chicago. That's where I learned my good English. Went there to make monies. Then after eight years, I says, Spiro's, I says, you's made enough. So I come back to Greece. Brings this car. Best ones on the island. No one else gets a car like this. All the English tourists knows me. They all ask for me when they come here. They knows they want to be swindled. I likes the English. Best kinds of peoples. Honest to gods. If I wasn't a Greek, I'd likes to be English. We sped down a white road covered in a thick layer of silky dust that rose in a boiling cloud behind us. A road lined with prickly pears like a fence of green plates, each cleverly balanced on another's edges and splashed with knobs of scarlet fruit. We passed vineyards where the tiny stunted vines were laced in, gr in green leaves. Olive groves where the pitted trunks made a hundred astonished faces at us out of the gloom of their own shadow, and great clumps of zebra-striped cane that fluttered their leaves like the multitude of green flags. At last we roared to the top of a hill, and Spiro crammed on his brakes and brought the car to a dust-misted halt. There's you are's, he said, pointing with a great stubby forefinger. That's the villa with the bathrooms, likes you wanted. Mother, who had kept her eyes firmly shut throughout the drive, now opened them cautiously and looked. Spiro was pointing at a gentle curve of hillside that rose from the glittering sea. The hill and the valleys around it were an eider-down of olive groves that shone with a fish-like gleam where the breeze touched the leaves. Halfway up the slope, guarded by a group of tall, slim cypress trees, nestled a small, strawberry-pink villa, like some exotic fruit lying in the greenery. The cypress trees undulated gently in the breeze, as if they were busily painting the sky a still brighter blue for our arrival. <laughs>